0: Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve.
1: Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the uh, Healthy Sexuality in Marriage. My name is Marty. I'm a recovering sexaholic. And uh, my cohort, David H., and I are going to be your leaders for this session. Uh, in the spirit of the fifth tradition, to carry the message, this session will be recorded. The recorder will not be turned off during this session. We are going to take a uh, break after the first one hour uh, for all those of you who want to run from the building after we get done with an hour you can but we're going to take a break and then come back in for the second hour to switch tapes uh, if you don't wish to be recorded you may not may participate by listening or attend another session we ask that those who choose to share step up to the microphone so that those who listen to the recording can follow the discussion and also hear your question uh, will you please join me in the open in opening the session with a serenity prayer God, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Let's see, the essay purpose. Sexaholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover. The only requirement for membership is the desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. There are no dues or fees for SA membership, and we are self-supporting through our own contributions. SA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, and does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay stay sexually sober help others to achieve sexual sobriety. Uh, Guidelines for sharing. Because our common welfare comes first, here are the guidelines for sharing during this meeting. We do not cross-talk, that is, we share with the group as a whole rather than addressing any individual member. We speak in the I, not the we or the you. We leave our other identities at the door, including politics, religion, therapies, treatment centers, occupations, and other 12-step issues. We speak about and from the essay point of view. Our meetings focus on the essay approach to recovery, so whenever possible, we avoid the mention of titles and authors that are not essay-approved literature. We avoid profanity, sexual descriptions, and sexually abusive language. When sharing straight uh, stories, we can remind each other. Oh, sorry. When sharing strays, we can remind each other of our commitment to these guidelines by quietly raising our hands. Uh, the panelists that I know, over myself, my name is Marty uh, Q here from Nashville, and the New uh, Nessie meeting is my home group. And uh, David H from Franklin. We're going to be the uh, panel. Session leaders for today, uh, each of our panelists are going to share for a few minutes on the topic. We will then open the meeting for sharing our questions. Again, we ask that those who choose to share step up to the microphone so that those who listen to the recording can follow the discussion. We ask that you be mindful of time to allow others a chance to share. Uh, I guess we're going to speak for five to ten minutes. Is that what we talked about earlier, David? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Okay, and then we'll, uh, like I said, we'll take a little break here about after about uh, 55 minutes to an hour, and everybody can use a rest, and then we'll reconvene back here after about uh, five minutes. You want to start, Dave?
2: Sure.)
3: <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm David. I'm a recovering sexaholic. Hi, David. And uh, by the grace of God and this fellowship, I've been um, sexually sober since August 1st, 1985, uh, something for which I'm frequently but never sufficiently grateful. Um, Let me just tell you a little bit how it started for me. Um, I started SA in August 1985 in Rochester, New York. Um, I was trying to save a marriage. Um, I had been separated for about three months when I came to my first meeting, and and uh, while I had known, <clears throat> you have to bear with me today. I've got a, a bit of a cold. Um, while I, ha- I had known for about a maybe a year and a half that I was a, a sex addict, um, it really took my wife moving out. For me, really, to to seek the help that I needed, and uh, I was in a psychiatrist's office in Rochester, New York, saying, um, "You know, this probably doesn't have anything to do with our breakup, <laughs> but I think I've got a problem with uh, sexual addiction, and I don't know what to do." And uh, he wrote a uh, he wrote uh, an address. On a, on a piece of paper, and handed it to me, and it said, S.A., uh, P.O. Box 300, Simi Valley, California. Don't remember the zip, but um, I didn't know, have a clue what S.A. stood for, had I known. I'm not sure that I would have written a letter that I wrote, but uh, you know, I wrote that letter, and I said, I have a problem with sexual addiction, and um, I was told that you could help me. And uh, about... Uh, I was later to find out that 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 letter went to a post office box in Simi Valley, California. It was uh, picked up by our our founder, uh, taken back to his office, which was in his garage. And uh, he sent me a pamphlet. And, uh, you know, I got that pamphlet, and I opened it up, and uh, I read that problem. And, uh, I said, that's me. You know, my addiction took the form of, uh, compulsive masturbation, use of pornography, uh, sexualizing, fantasizing, uh, lusting, wanting to be lusted after, uh, dependency relationships. So I, you know, I bought it, I sold it, I traded it, I gave it away. Uh, I was intrigued by the tease, the forbidden. Uh, the only way I needed to be free of it was to do it. And, uh, That was my life. And uh, like I said, even after I read that, I had no clue that that had had any impact on my marriage. I still didn't know that. Because after all, I had done all those things in the secrecy and privacy, and my wife didn't know about it. And so, how could that have affected anything? Well, I was, you know, I found out. that's why I'm here uh, so I went to my first meeting and uh it uh it was in a mental institution in Rochester New York, and uh seemed like a very appropriate place.
2: <laughs>
3: there were people wearing white uniforms that uh kind of you know it was it was kind of like a they formed uh like you see soldiers on each side of a sidewalk you kind of had to run the gauntlet to get in the building they were all outside smoking and And uh, we met in their lobby, and there were three other men there that night. And uh, uh, I hadn't masturbated in a week, which I thought was kind of a prerequisite that you needed to come with some period of sobriety, whatever that would be. A week seemed seemed appropriate to me. And uh, (laughs) so I came to my first meeting, and the the guy that led the meeting um, said he was five months sober. And I about fell off my chair. Because try as I might, and, you know, I had known for about a year and a half that I was a sex addict. Uh, um, the best I could do was maybe, you know, it felt like months, but it was probably weeks. Okay, so when he said five months, I about fell off my chair. And uh, so he, uh, everybody shared. Um, I can't remember where I was in the order. I know he, he shared first and his acting act. Behavior was stuff that I had never heard of. Um, I'd never heard of this kind of behavior. and uh, But what I heard was, um, you know, he couldn't stop, and he wanted to. And, uh, and that's why he was there. Um, I never saw him again. Um, he came to that first meeting, and he never came back. We had to go... Uh, we had to go get the uh, um, material from him, he had, he had all the material, uh, he w- and he was so ashamed that he put it out on his front, front porch, and we went by and got it. And uh, I was la- later to find out that uh, he was involved with uh, same-sex um, issues and was flying from Rochester to New York City to the bathhouses in New York City. and. Uh, he contracted AIDS, and he died. He never came back. But that's what, it, that's what got me. That's, he was there when I needed him. And uh, another man from that meeting is uh, still in the program today and still sexually sober today. I think our sobriety dates are different by one day. I think I was sober seven days, and he was sober six days. So from that first meeting, two out of four of us are still around. And we're still recovering, so um, so i um, three months later, I got transferred to uh, Detroit, and um, my ex my wife at the time was stayed in in uh, back in rochester and and uh, I began my recovery journey as a single man and i was I was um, single. We were married for about another another year and a half. So we we divorced in in August of 1987. And uh, um, I spent those th- those two years wearing my wedding ring. I wanted to to make that marriage work, and uh, but it didn't happen. And uh, you know, part of that was my you know my faith belief. Uh, I I belonged to a denomination that didn't believe in divorce and part of it so part of that was out of desperation too you know in my mind it was you know I'm never going to have sex again in my life uh, if I don't make this marriage work um, you know, I, I've, I've cha- changed my beliefs over time but uh, at the time that's the way it felt so I went to, to Detroit as a single man and um, and uh, we divorced in 1987 so when I was about two years sober um, we st- We were divorced, and uh, you know I'll I'll back it up just a little bit. Um, You know, like I said, I was I I was in a denomination that um, talked about you know preserving marriage. And three months into the program, there was a there was a conference in Cleveland, 1985 of October, and uh, I went there, and there was a woman there who was uh, single, and who stood up and said, uh, you know, I think. If you're going to try to date in this fellowship, um you're probably going to have to be single for at least 2 years before you start dating. And uh okay, my mindset was I'm going to prefer um you know, preserve my marriage, but immediately I did the calculation. Okay, that means August of 1987 I'll be able to date. And uh So anyway, it it turned out that it was a lot longer than that. And uh um I didn't have my first date until uh, until 1990, and, and I'm going to do a talk on dating, and probably most of you won't be there, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about that later on. But you know, the purpose of today was to talk about uh, healthy sexuality in marriage. and marriage, and so I spent 11 years uh, single and sober in this program, and before I got married to my wife, Anne. We've been married for 13 years. Um, we have uh, two beautiful boys, and who are both miracles uh, because the first son was uh, was conceived uh, in vitro. And, um, are, and I've got a whole. If any of you ever have to go through that, please come and talk to me because you talk about maintaining your sobriety and having to provide samples. Okay, so we could. If you, any of you ever need to talk about that, I'm, I'm the guy to talk to. Um, and there have been several of us that have had to go through that. So, it's, it, you know, I'm not the only one. But So uh, Stephen's our first son. He was conceived in vitro, and our second son, Andrew, um, was adopted. And uh, we have an open adoption with his, um, with his family, his, his birth family. And, and so not only did we get a son, but we got an entire family uh, in our lives. So uh, it's been miraculous. Um, what I wanted to talk about here and, and, and the whole purpose of us suggesting this as a topic was, you know, I wasn't taught about sex. Um, nobody taught me anything. You know, I learned by reading, mostly pornography. Um, I learned by talking in the locker room uh, or out behind the barn or whatever you want to call it, but from other kids uh when i was t- when i was twenty one my dad uh handed me a copy of everything you wanted to know about sex, but was afraid to ask but by then it was a little too late to ask you know um you know all those images you know were already there so um part of my desire today is to take away something and and i'm you know we 're already talking you know my my boys are nine and ten um you know my hope and my prayer is that the things that we talk about here today and, and ongoing are going to be things that I can take and, and teach my kids. Um, I was in St. Louis a couple years ago, and uh, I just done my talk on dating, and and uh, it's a long story. But uh, somebody was trying to tell me how you know they had to have a relationship to stay sober, and uh, you know after hearing that for about a half an hour, which led into lunchtime. Um, You know, I I finally said, maybe your approach is going to work, but you know, I've only been around about 20 years by then, and I've never seen it work. So, God bless you and good luck. And and I'm sitting there and I'm fuming because all the people that I came to the to the conference with were sitting at another table, and I'm sitting at a table with of total strangers. And uh, one of the guys leaned across the table and said, "So, Dave, what are you teaching your kids about sex?" And uh, it, it it just launched into a, a, a just a lovely conversation, and uh, it just so happens, um, you know, one of the one of the positive um, uh, signs that I got that my my wife was in, the person intended that God intended for me was that when I um, told her about my addiction, and that's a whole other story. I could spend another hour talking about that. I asked her. Uh, I I handed her a pamphlet because it was suggested to me that uh, don't answer any questions that haven't been asked. So when she asked, you know, when I told her I was uh, recovering from my sexual addiction, I said, here's a pamphlet. Take that. My wife is a voracious reader. And she came back to me and said, have you got anything more? And uh, I said, yeah, there's this book, um, you know, in fact, the book that Caused me to come into the fellowship uh, was written by a, a non essay person. It was called uh, Sexual Addiction back when it came out. It's now called Out of, out of the Shadows. And uh,
0: so I had a copy
3: of that and I gave it to her. She read it. She asked, the only question she ever asked was, you know, she had a fear uh, because she wanted to raise children that. Um, you know, my problem was with children, and she asked me that. That's the only specific question that she ever asked me about my recovery. And, uh, and so I answered that. She read the book. So about six months later, her mom calls her, all excited. Now, her mother uh, is a pastor's wife, and so she's been counseling people for 50 years. Okay, her, her husband is a retired pastor and um, retired about 10 years ago. So she's been, as a pastor's wife, part of their job is to counsel. And uh, she's been counseling families forever. And uh, one of her areas of expertise, turns out, is sex education. In a, in a church setting, what does God teach us about sex? Here are our beliefs. Here's how it's applied. I'm not, you know, I know some of the reasons that are behind that. Turns out, you're going to be surprised, one of her relatives was a sex addict. Um, Turns out one of my wife's father's relatives was a sex addict. So there was an interest there. So um, six months, or a couple months after Anne had read the book, her mother calls her all excited and said, I found a book. You're not going to believe it it describes my grandfather to a T. And it's one of the most exciting books that I've ever read. And and said, well, what's, what's the title? And she said, Out of the Shadows. And she said, oh, yeah, I've read it.
2: <laughs> and
3: and uh, she said, you've read it? She said, yeah, I've got a friend who, you know, has that problem. And she's, you know, and she was just astounded. So that was one of the signs that I got early on that, this, this is where I belong, this, this family. Some of the material I'm going to share with you, um, I just got in the mail from my mother-in-law because she talks about this in uh, in church settings to youth groups. And um, and she's helping me at age 57 learn about sexuality because, you know, like I said, I didn't learn. Um, here's, here's the way it, it boils down to me, and I'll shut up. Um, and I've, I've talked with my sponsor probably the most openly about this. Uh, I'm going to read this to you. I, I apologize for reading this to you, but it's, a, it's the best way to, to convey it in the shortest amount of time, I think. My discovery is very simple, and it's been coming together for a year or two now, and that, that, it's my, and that, it, that it is that my physical relationship with my wife is the natural outgrowth of our emotional intimacy. The physical aspect of our marriage has become more special over time because of our willingness to talk about it, both during our physical intimacy and at other times. Our physical intimacy has been an adventure of exploration that is built on a foundation of trust and mutual desires to please one another. For me, it has to be devoid of any manifestation of lust, fantasy, memories, media, previous experiences, um, and since you know only another sexaholic could understand what goes on in, in between these two ears in the course of a day, you know I have thousands of short circuits in the course of a day, where I you know I get images from 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I I, I still can remember the first piece of pornography that I, that I ever saw. And I was, I was eight years old. Okay? This stuff is burned into my brain. Part of that is, is going to be helpful for you to understand here in, in a second. I just learned this. Um, part of that is because I'm a man, and that's the way I'm wired. Um, but, nevertheless, that can't be a part of my physical intimacy with my wife. What I found has been that the physical gets better, because the emotional gets better uh, it's as simple as that my faith tradition teaches that two become one and that seems to be the heart of all this um, how do two become one um, yeah I'm an engineer and so I, I like to think things in in terms of mathematical terms and I this is not my this is not my example but Um, I heard this said once one times one equals one okay so multiplication is the only way you can have two ones equal one Uh, if you take two halves and multiply them what do you get you get a quarter so I went into my all my relationships as half a person and guess what the people that I was in relationship with even if I give them credit to be a whole the sum is less you know the, the, the product is less than one and uh so it made sense to me that all my relationships prior to recovery weren't going to work because I wasn't a whole person. Um, I don't understand this. This two become one thing, um, but, but that's, that's the way it seems to be. We're, we're connected, and that connection takes a lot of work and a lot of trust. Uh, our physical sexuality is part of our soul connection, and it continues to grow as long as we continue to grow together. So you know, we have to be intentional about our, our emotional health with each other and, and how we grow together. It's a mystery. This is the mystery of our union. I, think, I believe it to be a great gift of our creator. I want my kids to understand this before they become sexually active. Um, the clock is ticking. And you know, you know we've already had a lot of discussions about that. If you want to talk about this i've got some material I didn't bring it with me, but I've been handing this material out to people who have been interested the stuff that my mother in law feeds me so we've got a book in our house that is uh, that we go to when our kids have questions, and they have lots of questions uh, you know the, the 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 neat thing is that you know we don't try to answer questions that aren't being asked, and most of their questions are are pretty you know, that there isn't a lot of thought behind them. They're just very curious. So we've got a, a book that we teach them. Our experience in the 13 years that we've been married um, seems to be consistent with our faith beliefs. Prior to marriage, we believe that we should save the physical for the one that we believe God called us to be with. Um, and I've already told you the story about, you know, once I told Ann and, and uh, it took... A number of months we had dated probably uh, four to six months before I started telling her my recovery story and I started I'm a, I'm a child of an alcoholic, so I started on that vein first and then built up to the uh, uh, discovery or the discussion of my sexual addiction. Um, I believe that my God created me to have a choice. And uh, just as I could choose to have a relationship with God, uh, I could also choose whether to follow what I believe God to be teaching me about sex before marriage. And, uh, and so my wife and I made a mutual choice. And, you know, I didn't have to talk to her into this. this. This is where she w- was, and uh, that was part of the reason I fell in love with her. That's what she believed in.
2: But I had a
3: second chance. I obviously had been married. I had um, been active before I had been married. So, but for me, it was a chance to start over. And I think eleven years, I kind of felt like I, I started over. I tell people I got my virginity back, um, and that's and that's the way it was. Uh, most SA's think that their sexual acting out worked in the beginning, but over time, most of most of us came to the realization that every time we acted out, we lost a piece of our soul. Our experience over the last 13 years has been that our physical connection requires time and trust. It's not about instant gratification, uh, but it is getting to, getting to know our part, each other and, and what works and what doesn't. Um, this is the wonderful gift that God has given us if we choose to accept it. Um, the, like I said, the physical becomes a wonderful adventure, exploring each other in an environment of love and trust, and I and I believe it's going to last our entire relationship. Um, it's not an event to be ranked or measured. Um, I just want to I just want to read a couple of things, um, and, and I found this to be very helpful, and and we can if we if you. If you'd like, we can go into this, but I want to—I I, want to get off and let Marty talk. But one of the things that my my mother-in-law sent me, and this this was really helpful for me. And I've got a bunch of this stuff. Um, men are primarily aroused by sight and thought. No wonder I got a problem. You know that's that's where that's where my problem is. It's is with what I see and, and what I think about. Um, but that's also the way God created me to be aroused by by what I see and uh, by what I think about. You know, what a paradox. But you know, I I didn't wasn't there for Harvey's talk about lust, but I know, he and I have been talking a lot about this lately. It's our thinking. Lust is our thinking. And uh, if I carry that into my relationship with my spouse, I'm a big-time problem. And yet, it's my thinking that's important for my sexuality and my relationship with my wife. So there's a paradox there. Women, on the other hand, are aroused by talking and touch. Um, my you know, my mother-in-law has this saying: uh, "Sex begins in the kitchen," and
2: uh,
3: uh, and that's that's you know that's we spend a lot of time in the kitchen talking. That's that's where we talk. Um, it's, a, it's you know when you got two young kids, that's that's the only time you got to do it. You're cleaning off the table, you're doing dishes, and you're talking to each other. Um, that's where we build our intimacy and our trust. And so. Uh, that's where I'm at today. Um, it's It's been a wonderful experience. Uh, I, I just can't, uh, you know, what a gift. What a gift. Um, you know, when I think about all those things that I, 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 I was bombarded with in my addiction, the things that I thought mattered and made a difference, and uh, when it comes down to it, you know, the person that I can tell that I'm I'm frightened, um, that I'm afraid of what's, you know, this, this triggered some fear and you know, I'm feeling really insecure about this at work or whatever, you know, the person that I can share that with, you know, that builds our emotional intimacy with each other. That makes her feel safe and secure. Um, our unconditional, um, the one thing she, you know, I my wife read all this stuff before I, before I uh presented it, because I wanted her to have the opportunity to rebut and uh and she told me as I was walking out the door that um the thing that makes her feel the most special um, is the way that I can love her just the way that she is uh, when we met, she was thirty four uh we we <coughs> married, we married a year and a half later so um, you do the math there. Um, she felt like she was at her prime, and, and now she, she, she's going through a change in her body and her um, and and it's it's okay. Um, it's and trust me, I've had so many issues. You know, uh, when when I went into high school, I was five foot two. Um, most people that remember me from high school remember me as being this little, you know, this little. Geek, and uh, and so I I had all these insecurities about how tall I was, and and I went through puberty when I was 17, and the locker rooms were unbelievably humiliating. Um, And so for a woman to say that she likes the way that I look is huge, and uh, you know you know we are perfect for each other in that regard. And that's what makes it so much fun. So anyway, I, I'm looking forward to hearing what people have to say. I'm, a, I'm, I, I'm looking forward to what Marty has to say and, and from his approach. And and uh, let's keep talking about this stuff. You know, like Harvey talked about last night. We just, it's amazing that we don't talk about this stuff. But I want to. I, I, you know, it's it's it is so such a natural part of my life today. And uh, that's the way I want my kids to to uh, to grow up and and, and and be a part of their life too. So, thanks.
1: Uh, thanks, David. My name is Marty, a recovering sex Good to be here and be sober today. And uh, my, I'm just going to keep my history brief. Uh, my Acting out, I grew up in Montana, and if anybody has bestiality bestiality issues, I I beg your forgiveness. But there's a saying in Montana that uh, where the men are men and the sheep are nervous, and uh, that's the kind of uh, atmosphere I grew up in. I I, I left Montana in 1990 as a bar fighting, womanizing uh, drunk and uh, what I came to realize after 20-some years of recovery is that what I really am is a creative, sensitive, loving man. So there's been a big transition in my life. Um, My first uh, enter into recovery over a sex addiction was in 1987. I was dating a woman who's now my wife, and uh, when I would... Drink. I would act out sexually. I would I would uh, have sex outside of our relationship, and everybody I knew did that. I, I I did not know that that was not okay. I knew in my gut it was, but I can tell you, fast forwarding to two thousand and nine, was it was that I did not love my uh, girlfriend, who's now my wife. It's that the the pain and the trauma where I came from far outweighed uh, my love for her. And this program for me, and this is just one addict's thing, has been about healing that trauma, right-sizing the ship, and now my goal the last couple of years has been about uh, stepping into my own humanity and reclaiming my own sexuality, and, uh, and that sex ain't the problem anymore. And lust really isn't the problem anymore. Um, I have periods of lust that will come up, and uh, I, I, for me, treating the lust is about what, what's going on. I, I for this addict, when I wake up, I never wake up, and I've never lusted just to lust. I lust because there's something going on in here. So, um, I got uh, uh, grew up with a family with one sober alcoholic. My mother's been sober almost 40 years in Alcoholics Anonymous as well as other programs, and was pretty influential in my life growing up. She uh, started uh, Narcotics Anonymous in the state of Montana. And they were asked to leave the AA rooms, and she was the first in many a line of people to go to codependency treatment and adult children of alcoholic meetings. And so, uh, and I have to say, I'm not sure which is worse, growing up in a family with a raging alcoholic or growing up in a family with a raging sober person. Um, You know... (laughs) I had a therapist ask me two years ago
2: uh,
1: if I'd ever been an adult in my marriage, and I said, yes. And she said, when? I said, when I got sober in AA in 1994. And she said, well, so you've been a recovering adult, but have you ever been an adult? And that's what opened the door for me to really uh, step outside the umbrella of this safe life I've carved outside of myself for the past 20 years and really step into the guy. God knew me. Not to say that I left this fellowship or the other programs, but it was important for me to, to, to understand something really clearly, that I would never be anything less than human, and I would never be anything more than human. And for me, that meant really, really taking some risks. And uh, the only thing that qualifies for me to stand up is here is I got crazy. About three months ago, they asked me to share in our Saturday morning meeting, and I went in there and I thought, like Harvey has talked about, and David, I'm tired of not talking about sex because it's not the enemy. I got pretty specific in there, and it opened up. And uh, man, I, I, I'm not nervous. I'm an entertainer by, by gift, I guess. And I, my hands were shaking. And I thought, there it is, right there. It's time to get vulnerable and start talking about this stuff. Because I, I, the, the disease and the addiction no longer grabs a hold of my legs and takes me down um, today. And I, I can remember Harvey saying he'd been lust free for four years at one point when I first got in, and I thought that was insane. And uh, it took me seven and a half years, between six to seven and a half years of uh, sobriety and essay before I got lust free, and then I went to work on healing this uh, my my sexual trauma when I was a kid. So, um, anyways, I don't want to bore you with all that. It's a typical uh, alcoholic family abuse. Had a sexually incestuous relationship with my sister. Um, my disease is, has comforted me in this way. The booze tempered my rage and sex was the great comforter and that's that's how it came down and so when I removed the booze man I would go into those meetings and I can remember this guy came up to me after meeting uh, Danny Marchese and he said uh, boy so when you talk the veins in your neck he said I'm afraid to sit next to you that you're going to stroke out and kill yourself right in front of me (laughs) so I started treating that and it was very shortly thereafter um I, I, I'll back up and say that uh, when I moved from Montana to southern Indiana uh, when my mom uh, got remarried and I moved under the demise of I wanted to play sports because I was a bit of an athlete and really I just wanted to get out from under my father's alcoholism and rage and my mother immediately made my sister and I start going to Alatine, and my sister and I, were, if it's possible, were circuit Alatine speakers. And uh, about 1987, I discovered booze, and I discovered girls, and I didn't need Alateen anymore. And uh, boy, did I not need Alateen anymore. I found it, you know. And uh, about, I guess that was about 81, 82. And then I started, uh, moved back to Montana, got kicked out of my mom's sober home. You had to be sober and in recovery to live there. And uh, when I said earlier that I don't know what was worth living in a raging recovery home or raging alcoholic home, that is my goal in recovery, is to not repeat what happened in my home. My kids are okay the way they are. If they have a drink, I'm not going to rush them to an AA meeting. That's their choice. Um, so uh, I went back to Montana, and man, I started drinking. I gave up, uh, I had a couple offers to play football, and I gave that up to drink and to uh, chase girls. And then I met uh, the lady who's now my wife. And um, I had two different kinds of relationships. I was either a sexual anorexic and had all these affairs going on outside of it, or I used women solely for sex. And um, there was no in-between. And when I met my wife, I had been going to meetings for a little I had started going back to meetings, and something happened with that relationship. It was the first and the last that I ever experienced where my relationship with my wife was somewhere in-between. And I account a lot of that to the safety of my wife and her family. Um, I would go to my wife's fa- family's house, and they would be nap- napping and relaxing on the couch and I could remember just buzzing inside, not getting that, because there was not a waking moment in my home, in my father's home, where we were doing something to be productive. Um, he literally would have us dig a ditch and fill it back in if we had nothing to do on a Sunday. <laughs> so when uh, Mount St. Helens hit in 1980, you know, they said, do not go outside, and we were up on the on the uh, lake picking rocks off the swimming hole. You know, that's the kind of home I grew up in but. So my wife and I really was able to really let really be vulnerable with my wife and start to let her in, you know. And I carried all the ego and the jock and all that bar fight and stuff with me with her. And my wife started uh, confronting me about this acting out thing, and uh, that was 1987. We've been together ever since. So there's been a tremendous amount of healing in that area. Um, what I know today about healthy sexuality is... Um, Number one, don't ever open your mouth up in a meeting about sex if you don't want to be pinned into one of these things, because you will be here. Um, I have to say that uh, my experience is, and this is how I hear people, and it may not be what they're saying in meetings, but um, in SA, we do a great job of caging the addict, more so than any program I've ever been in. And let me tell you, I've been in about every program there is. Regularly, Um, I started going to 12-step meetings in 1987, three to five five to a week, and have not stopped. I have not dinked around with this program. This has been my life's work for the past, what is that, 22, almost 23 years now. We caged that addict, and we put him in there. And for me, there's this other side of this. There's two parts to my addiction. There's this addict alcoholic. I call him the outer child. He's the guy that makes me broke, late, picks fights with my wife, Threatens to kill the guy at Walgreens because my photos are late.
2: <laughs> and over here,
1: there's this, there's this little kid who really is a connection to my God, and, and all he knows is feelings and need. And the growing up process for me has been this and around my sexuality. is this, this outer child's entire job is to protect that little kid's vulnerability. Growing up, I was sexually abused, the rage in my home, all of it. He came in there as the ego to protect that little kid. This guy was caged for six and a half, probably eight years, and uh, I got really angry at the fellowship, and I came back in, and, and I wanted somebody to teach me how to, how to, how to stand up and go, look, this sex is not the problem. Lust is not the problem anymore. I want to know what healthy sex is, and I got really angry in the program. And in fact, I had to make an amend to a couple of long-term sober guys I would share under the demise of experience, strength, and hope and take pot shots at them. And I couldn't live with that BS anymore. And my sponsor said, "He goes, isn't it ironic that you're angry at them for not doing what you need to do for yourself?" And I uh, said, so "What'd you say?" <laughs> you know. And and, uh, and about that time, I ran into this guy who's celebrating 44 years of sobriety this June. You know, if he if he makes it. And uh, he's like me. He's he's not a gray guy. He's full of color, man. And he uh, is intense. He's extremely sensitive. He's a very bright guy, and he's opinionated. And he looked at me, and he said, tell me what's wrong with with the programs you're in. And I said, my God, you can't do that, you know. And he said, yes, you can. He said, you will either turn back into this program, you're going to get fundamentals about it, and start thumping the book. And he said, they'll ask you to be a circuit speaker, and blah, 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 blah. And he said, or you can step outside the umbrella of the protective net you've developed for yourself over the last 20 years and become the guy, guy created for you. I said, well, I can't leave these programs. He said, I'm not telling you how to leave the program. He said, "But it's time for you to step out and be human. And that's what I did. That was five and a half years ago. And as a result of that, what's occurred is uh, when I started working on healthy sexuality, uh, the first thing anybody told me from uh, Reed Finlayson, my uh, psychiatrist, who has done a tremendous amount of studies on sex addiction, uh, my counselor therapist is a sex, uh, certified sex addiction therapist and started a sex addiction treatment program here in town about 25 years ago, and I really trust her. And Patrick Carnes, who had the blessing of meeting in person, they said the first step is to go back and to, uh, and to learn about the human body and to learn what happens physically and physiologically to you when you're sexual. And I thought, I know that crap, man. Let's get to the juice of the, of the thing. And, uh, and they wouldn't work with me unless I did that. And so I started asking people in SA about how they owned, owned and honored their own sexuality or how they honored it or expressed it. And I never really got any clear answers. It may have been how I was hearing. And I called another friend of mine who's got a lot of time in, SA, or excuse me, in AA and a lot of time in OA. And I said, how do you honor your sexuality? And he said, the first thing I do is I own it. I said, what does that mean? I said I'm a man. I said I'm probably an eight and a half out of zero to ten in the testosterone meter. He said, No. He said, I own it by, by when I feel aroused, I say I'm aroused. And he said, When I see an attractive woman, I said that's an attractive woman. And I don't you know and I'm not suggesting this for anybody, I'm talking about for me that there's a part of me what Dave said is that I'm a man. You know, I, things are visually, they're attractive to me. And I had to start separating what was my loins from what was lust. And it took me about seven and a half years to start to really begin to understand what was loins and what was lust. And I can tell you the physical difference for me is when it's the loins, I I feel honored, I feel like I'm caring for myself, and I feel really lucky to be in God's world. That includes if I see an attractive woman that that I think is an attractive woman, and then it goes away and I go on about my day. When it's lust, I'm looking for it, it causes me physical pain in my chest and in my gut. And I, and I go, to the, go to the problem for me, which is, what's going on? What, what am I uncomfortable about today? So it started with that, and it started with me starting to communicate that with... And the thing I'll say about my relationship with my wife is, is my wife has been an amazingly safe container for me to start to process some of this stuff. Um, And so I started to own it. And then I got some books on the human body, on physiology, and I started reading about it. And there were so many things that occurred in a sexual experience for me that I had no idea that made so much sense that I went, oh, my God, that's why that happens, and that's why this occurs. And I have to tell you that my wife wife and I did this book uh, that a friend of mine in this program recommended. And part of it was discussing... There's a chart and a path about the uh, what happens with a man when he's aroused, uh, and then what happens when there's an ejaculation and when a woman's aroused in an, in an orgasm. And of course, our patterns are completely different. <laughs> Why else would God make it any any simpler for us? And we were talking about it, and it was like all of a sudden these little things started to happen. And you know, my wife said, "I got to set a boundary here." And I said, "What's that?" She said. I'm afraid the next time we're sexual, you're going to be looking to see if this is occurring or if that's occurring. And uh, in fact, the next time we were sexual, I thought I'd look down to see if this was happening. And she said, Are you reading the book or are you being sexual? So I I couldn't do that. I had to get back and get present. But, you know, um, the thing I just want to say is that, you know, I can have that conversation with my wife and we can laugh about it today. And boy, that's a long, hell of a long road from 1987, from where, when we first uh, met each other. And I'll tell you this, we are sitting in the middle of this process, we are sitting and uh, watching uh, Oprah, which, boy, some of my manliness wants to tell you that I don't watch Oprah, but, um, or tell you I was doing it to please my wife, but there was, there was a... Uh, uh, episode on Oprah about sex and we were watching it and there was this couple in there and they had the exact same issues we did. Uh, There's this thing my wife heard that she shared with me that in that, that Christian women are bored or Christian men are, are bored and Christian women are tired. <laughs> you know and I don't know if that has do with Christianity or not. all I can tell you is, is that as a 43 year old man with two kids who take a lot of our time and I'm happy to give it, finding the time for sex to add up, is pretty difficult and I watched this couple and he was just something for her to check off his list he didn't did was unwilling to be vulnerable enough to communicate what he wanted and desired he pouted he turned uh, uh, to eating or pornography and that's the that's the American story and uh, so I, 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 when it came time for me to approach my wife about healthless sexuality, I went to a sex addiction therapist and I went to my sponsor and I said, "I think I just need to do a, a year of abstinence and, and cut that need off." And my sponsor said, "I think you're crazy." And he said, "I don't think a year of abstinence would help you." And I said, "Well, well, where the hell were you when I was six months sober?" You know, I don't think I don't. I wish I would have had that kind of information earlier on, but. And and this sex addiction therapist, she said, you know, she said, you could do that or you could go and tell her what you want and desire. And I thought, well, I think I'll go with a year of abstinence because, boy, I (laughs) I don't want to go and tell her what I want and what I desire. And here was the trick, okay, I learned this about myself a few years back that my vulnerability is what I was terrified to share with you people all of my life. And what I know today um, is that my vulnerability, when I'm in my vulnerability, when I'm as at staying level with you people as a 43-year-old man of my own skin and I don't have all the answers, I can be no more powerful. Because I'm not trying to hurt you or me and I'm just telling you my truth. And if that truth is the truth in my heart, that's God present and I can't be hurt. And that's been my experience most times. So the trick with going with that, and, I, and I, I want to tell you, are we at the one hour mark? Okay, what I want to tell you is that um, this is the topic that comes up in every guy I know in SA's life who has the same situation. I'm in, in their 40s, young kids, and every guy in my life outside of this room, because I started talking to guys outside of this room about it. And every man in my life is, has this frustration. And uh, none of them want to go to their wives and talk about it. I didn't want to do it. And so I went to the table. We were at a burrito shop, having a burrito. And you're going to hear burrito in my story a lot over this thing. I don't know what it is, but these conversations between my wife and I and other men happen when we were eating Mexican food. So
2: <laughs>
1: I'm on an Italian seafood kick right now. But So I had to go to the table and see, I either go one-up on you out of that angry... Addict, adolescent, or I go one down and I become a victim and I have a need and I'm needy. And boy, we went there and we were sitting there eating and I asked my wife, I said, "Can we? uh, I'd like to talk about our sexual relationship if it's a good time for you." And we had talked about it earlier. And she looked at me and we're at this Mexican restaurant. She said, "Sure." And and I said, "Well, let me go get go refill my drink. You want something?" And so we started talking about it. And and I'm going to be—I don't want to be specific and graphic. But I'll just tell you that I said, you know, I know there's a part of our sexual relationship that my one friend in this program calls, he calls it Kenny G sex. And I said, the candles are lit, the music's playing,
2: it's making love.
1: And I said, and it's really intimate and it's really vulnerable. And I said, and it's really important to me that we do that. And I said, there's this other part of me. I said, uh, my other friend in this program, he calls it monkey sex. And I said, it's innate. I said, it's about my loins. And sometimes I don't want to talk. I don't want to have to have done the dishes, vacuumed the floor, cleaned your car, repeated what you've said back to me. sometimes I just want to have sex. And I want, I want it to be erotic. I want it to be fun. And I want it to be playful and spontaneous. And we're, So I took another bite of my burrito. <laughs> And my wife said, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, funny you asked. I said, I have a list here. And I pulled out a list, and I went down the list. And I'm telling you, my face was red, but I stayed present. I read her the list, and she said, I'm comfortable with everything but the last one. She said, we're going to have to work up to that. And I took it off the list, and I I wanted to run out of that burrito shop with my hair on fire. Okay, and I tell that story to lighten the lighten the mood and tell you that 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 sex is okay. And I'm going to tell you what my wife said in response to that. She looked at me and she said, "This is really hard for me to say. I'm carrying a lot of shame about this," she said, "but can you remind me because I'm not sure I'm going to remember." And I said, "Well, what's a what's a uh how often do you see this happening?" And she said, "Well, how often do you see it happening?" And I said, every day no. I said, uh, I said and, I, and I got honest and I said you know I said I think once a month would be reasonable and I said and that lines up with my own libido and she said I think once a month is very reasonable she said would you be willing to remind me and I said you tell me the date <laughs> the time and I will remind you you know and, and, and what I reassured my wife and what I know about my wife about the difference between me and my wife and a lot of men in my life and a lot of their wives are, is when you this is after a lot of time in sexual addiction recovery I got sober from affairs in this program in 1987. That's when I started my treatment program for this, um, is if you ask me something, it typically is going to come down to two things in my life. Is this, how does this affect my, my money, my checkbook? How does this affect my sex life? That's with some time in this recovery, and I I consider myself healed from sexual addiction today. Okay? With my wife, and she has told me this, it's somewhere between I don't know, she's probably being great nice when she says it's somewhere around eight or nine, maybe ten. You know, it's not on the agenda list. And I we were in this burrito shop and I said, It's the same thing when you have to remind me to put clothes on our kids to put a winter coat on to go sledding. We were going sledding yesterday. I said, Come on, let's go. We walked out. They didn't have gloves on. One of them had his church shoes on. I don't care. Let's go have some fun. You know, I would take my kids out and we'd come on. She said, Did you all eat? And I'd look at my kids and we sweet No, we didn't eat. Would...? Right? Um, There's a heater I put up on the sink in our bathroom to keep the thing warm. And she doesn't like it up there because she's afraid it's going to fall in the sink and electrocute the kids. It doesn't occur to me. I want to get warm. I plug it in. If they want to move it, they can move it. So there's a big difference here for us, you know. And the health, the health for me is in discussing that and not taking it personal. Showing up as an adult and asking for what I want and for what I desire. Okay, my sponsor told me about three weeks, three months ago. I've been really talking to a lot of people, trying to trying to write down about what what their experience with healthy sexuality is. Harvey and. I and Wilson talked about it after the meeting last week, and I've been asking a lot of guys, what is it? Because I'm not an expert on this. All I have is my own experience. Okay, thanks. And, uh, I just lost my. Oh, what was I saying before I said that?
2: You were talking about it after the
1: meeting. Oh, we were talking about this thing after the meeting about the ability to just discuss it and to have some fun and be playful about it. Harvey said the same thing. It's not on his wife's register. My friend Wilson said the same thing. Okay? Now the old days I would go I would go in as a victim. Damn it, why would God why? And I'm gonna tell you that when I get on the pearly gates or wherever I end up, man, the first question I'm asking is, what the hell, man? Why? Why? You know, jokingly. And you know, here's what it is for me. This is where it comes down the middle of the road for me, is it's about talking about it, it's about negotiating it as an adult. My sponsor said, "If we need sacks, he said, I got news for you. Every one of us in this program are screwed." He said, "Now, if it's a want and a desire, he said, then I got hope." And what I know today is, is kids come I, when I go to my wife with a need. I'm over here in the little kid. Okay, when I go to her with an absolute. I'm over here an angry adolescent. When I go to her with a want, a desire, and I say, "Hey, you know, I would really like this in our relationship. What can I do for you?" There's no victimization in that. She has a choice, and I have a choice. And one of the things I've discovered about this is, if I even talk to my wife about sex, the need for sex diminishes for me a whole bunch. And it's not even actually about the event. It's about that my wife chooses to show up and be present in the sexual relationship with me. And boy, that's that—that that is way down the road, you know, from where I came from. So, um, there's a lot of information here, and I'm really looking forward to it. When David was sharing, David sharing the one thing I was looking under the table and just really feeling awful about is we don't have an SNL, a couple Asinons up here because I really, really would like to hear their. Their experience, because this is a two-way street. You got two bumbling sex addicts here. We got one thing we're going to shoot for. You know what I mean? I mean, I can't speak for Dave, but for me, you know, and I I really want to want to hear some other other things. And so, I want to end this by saying this for myself that again, I'll never be more than human. You know, I always wanted to be one of those circuit speaker guys, and I wanted to be a huge uh, music star. And you know, I don't want that today. I just want to be humble Marty and I spend a lot of time in silence today and here's the thing that i if anybody walks out here with anything that I have that I would love to give is that you're not not, you're going to never be anything less than human either and when I can honor that and step into that part of me man there's no other choice for me but to to step into some healthy sexuality and begin talking about it the thing that I know that I have suspected from the first days I started getting sober from lust in 1987 is that my sexuality and my spirituality are like a little rope; they're kind of wrapped and intertwined, and I can't separate that too when it's when it's really about my my human healthy sexuality and my human healthy spirituality. They're kind of one and the same. So, anyways, that's that's what I got so far. Thank you for the time.
3: We're going to take about five minutes so he can swap out the CD. So let's take a break, and we'll be back here. I've got about uh, 15 after, so it'll be about 20 after 10. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, your best source for experience, strength, and hope from the SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choose either monthly or a one-time donation. Music was provided by Matt P. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.